Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 71. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on May 10th, 2022, on a hot afternoon in Austin, Texas. In case you are new to the podcast, we're telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism, while doing our best to keep the politics out of it. Before I get to the history fun after my week off, there are a few things that bear mentioning. The first is that about 10 days ago, we pushed past 200,000 aggregate downloads since we began the podcast at the beginning of 2021. Pretty awesome. Thank you all very much, especially those of you who have put the word on the street. We've been pretty lucky in that, having received some very nice mentions on Twitter from heavy hitters like David Burge, a.k.a. Iowa Hawk, writer Nancy Rommelman, former editor of Reason Magazine Nick Gillespie, and author Walter Kern, among other luminaries. The second is a reminder that if you hear about a book on this podcast and decide you want to buy it, you can do so through the Amazon links on the episode pages on the website. Not only will I get a teeny-weeny commission, but I'll be able to claim credit for moving some books, which should be helpful if I ever need to talk to the authors or explain why I had long quotations from their work and that kind of thing. As foretold, I was on vacation and taking a nice break from my usual affairs, including both the chase for the legal tender and scribbling up the weekly episode. The vacation was my favorite kind, a Sea America road trip. My wife and I flew to Nashville, and after a couple of evenings in Music City, got into a ridiculously huge Jeep Wagoneer and drove a good part of the Natchez Trace Parkway with a side trip to Oxford, Mississippi, and a couple of points of interest along the way. If you follow me on Twitter, I put up a bunch of pictures. Anyway, we got back to New Orleans last Tuesday afternoon and went to two days of the second weekend of Jazz Fest before driving home to relieve the dog sitter and throw out all the junk mail, which we did yesterday. Not knowing my own country nearly as well as I should, I only learned what the Natchez Trace is within the last couple of years. The Natchez Trace was an old Indian trail that in turn followed the migration routes of buffalo and other animals from the Mississippi River Valley to salt licks around Nashville. Europeans started walking the trace as early as the mid-1700s. President Jefferson ordered that it be developed into a road to connect Daniel Boone's Wilderness Road, which ended in Nashville, with the Mississippi River. Because it was all but impossible to sail or row against the strong current of the lower Mississippi River, the Natchez Trace served as an important route for both trade and the military. Andrew Jackson would march his men down the Trace and back again in the defense of New Orleans during the War of 1812. Then came the paddle-wheel steamers, and the long walk from Natchez north became a lot less interesting. Today, there's a beautiful parkway of around 440 miles that follows the route of the original trace from just west of Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi. It is lined with historical markers and whatnot, some of which I put up on Twitter during the drive. And this is very cool. It's a bike trail, so one can ride all the way from Nashville to Natchez and vice versa through some beautiful country, if one is so disposed. 
I myself would need a fair amount of training before I'd be back into sufficient condition to do that, but it looked pretty fun. The construction of the Natchez Trace Parkway is its own story that will reinforce everyone's political priors. It started as a Civilian Conservation Corps project during the New Deal, proposed by Mississippi Boosters, but it was never finished. And gaps persisted until 2005, when Congress finally authorized the money to pave the last couple of segments. Today, like our other national parks, the Natchez Trace is a national asset, a journey through our history, even if it took 70 years to complete. There are lessons in there somewhere, but I'm not quite sure what they are. I'll put up some relevant links in the episode notes on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. And of course, if you follow me on Twitter, you can scroll back and see some of the pictures I put up during the trip. In the second decade of the 1600s, there was a huge increase in contacts between Europeans and indigenous peoples on the northeastern coast of the future United States and the future maritime provinces of Canada. By the spring of 1613, when Samuel Argyll, the principal subject of this podcast, kidnapped Pocahontas somewhere on the Potomac River, hundreds of European fishing boats sailed the coast of the region every year, perhaps 50 or more from England. These were working fishermen. They sailed in, caught their fill of fish, preserved them in salt, maybe traded illegally for furs, and went home. They had many encounters with Indians who themselves were taking to the sea, having learned to sail European boats they bought or captured. The fishermen didn't draw their own maps or write down chronicles, so we don't think of these trips as voyages of exploration. But they were. There must have been a robust oral tradition among the Europeans who sailed North America, a valuable store of information to the Europeans with ambitions in the area, especially the French and the English. You all know that by the middle of the 16-teens, Jamestown had turned a corner. It was enjoying a temporary peace that began with the marriage of John Rolfe and Pocahontas in 1614, and Rolfe was figuring out how to make it profitable by growing West Indian tobacco and Virginia's red clay. You also know that the French had tried to build a colony just inside the border between Maine and New Brunswick, and had moved it to Port Royal in Nova Scotia on the Bay of Fundy. The English captain Henry Hudson, sailing for the Dutch, had scoped out New York Harbor and the big river that would one day bear his name as far north as Albany. Hudson would die gruesomely on his next voyage but the Dutch would send ships to the future New York every year from 1611 to 1614. In 1614, John Smith, who had done more than anybody else to keep Jamestown going during its first two and a half years, would map the coast of the region as part of his long-term plan to promote English colonization in New England, which he, in fact, would name but it would be Samuel Argyll who would be most aggressive on behalf of English interests on the coast of New England, principally by destroying two French settlements on the coast in 1613 and 1614. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that Samuel Argyll was an English sea captain who hung around Jamestown, 
profiting from transporting settlers to and from England, trading with the Indians, and generally doing the work of colonialism at sea. It was Argyll who kidnapped Pocahontas in 1613, and it was Argyll who conveyed the Rolfe family to England three years later. Argyll's life story fits broadly into the early English Atlantic, and since I found an on-point and well-researched article by Seymour V. Connor, Sir Samuel Argyll, a biographical sketch from the April 1951 issue of the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography, I thought I'd tell it. Seymour Connor, it should be said, was in 1951 a graduate student in the history department at the University of Texas at Austin. He would go on to become a professor, archivist, and prominent historian of Texas. Credit where credit is due and all of that. I should also say up front that in some previous episode, one of those involving John Smith at Jamestown, I remember referring to Argyll as a dirtbag. That was probably an unfair, tossed-off take. True, Argyll wouldn't win Employee of the Month from your company's Human Resources Department, but neither was he particularly brutal for his time and under the circumstances, which is the standard we apply on this podcast. Argyll was born about 1580, the same year that Sir Francis Drake completed his circumnavigation. Boom. Argyll's father was a gentleman. His mother was the daughter of a knight, so Argyll's family was respectable in the thinking of the times, even if not noble. More importantly, Argyll's mother, Mary Scott, was a first cousin of Sir John Scott, who married Catherine Smith, a sister of Sir Thomas Smith, who was the treasurer of the Virginia Company. I assume you got that. I'll spell it out for you. Sir Thomas Smith was the brother-in-law of Argyll's first cousin once removed. Much clearer, I'm sure. The suggestion might be that this kinship led to Argyll becoming deputy governor of Virginia from April 1617 to April 1619. Or maybe it just led to opportunities that Argyll took full advantage of. Argyll enters history in the spring of 1609. The Virginia Company had been sending its ships by the classical route pioneered by Columbus and followed by almost everybody since, south to the Canaries and then across on the westerly trades to Puerto Rico. That route, however, had its shortcomings. The Spanish, pirates, and hurricanes, in no particular order. The company recruited Argyll to experiment with a direct route across the northern Atlantic. And so off he went to Jamestown more or less as the crow flies. Or as the crow would fly if it were a super crow. Argyll got there in nine weeks, two of which were becalmed. Not the fastest crossing ever. But as a result, historians often credit Argyll with innovating the northern route. I say not so fast. Long-standing and very attentive listeners will remember that back in 1602, Bartholomew Gosnold sailed directly west to New England, not far north of Virginia as these things go. So the question was, why was it necessary to send Argyll to try out the northern route? Why not just follow Gosnold's route? I haven't read anybody who addressed this question, but it seems to me entirely possible that nobody at the Virginia Company quite knew what Gosnold had done. Sure, Gosnold was obviously known to the Virginia Company, 
He'd been on the first voyage to Jamestown and had died there in the hot and diseased summer of 1607. But it might well have been that nobody available knew exactly where Gosnold had sailed and how. The northern route needed to be rediscovered, as it were, so the company sent Argyll. When Argyll got there in early July 1609, he quite famously tipped off John Smith that the big fleet of the Third Supply under the command of Thomas Gates was on the way and that Smith was to be demoted. Not having benefited from Argyll's rediscovery of the northern route, the Third Supply would sail the usual southern way, be disrupted by a hurricane, you can't see my shocked face, and its flagship, the Sea Venture, would be cast away on Bermuda. But of course, you guys know all of that. Argyll returned to London in October 1609, probably in the same group of ships that took John Smith away from Virginia forever. He sailed again for Jamestown in March 1610, this time in the fleet that brought the new governor, Thomas West, whose title I grossly mispronounced a few episodes back. West was Lord de Space La Space War, but correctly pronounced Delaware. Unfortunately, you heard me say de la war, an embarrassing error in pronunciation that will turn out to be fairly important. Anyway, this was the fleet that arrived just in time to reverse the abandonment of Jamestown after the starving time. Delaware made Argyll a member of the governor's council, and on June 19th dispatched Argyll and George Summers, who had been one of the Sea Venture castaways, back to Bermuda. Their mission was to retrieve pigs and other supplies that had been left there because they couldn't fit on the homemade pinnaces that carried the survivors to Jamestown. Summers was in command. He sailed the sloop Patience, and Argyll sailed the smaller Discovery. Along the way, the two ships were separated, and at least the Discovery was swept up in the Gulf Stream to the north. Argyll fished the Cape Cod shoals, sailed at least as far north as Penobscot Bay, sailed down the coast, named Point Delaware after Lord Delaware, and returned to Jamestown with his load of fish, most of which he donated to the colonists. Also that summer, Argyll made trips to the Rappahannock and Potomac Rivers, established relations with the locals, and returned to Jamestown with a thousand bushels of badly needed corn. Argyll spent the fall and winter of 1610 and 11 in the colony. This was during the big reinforcement of Jamestown and the English counteroffensive during the first English Powhatan War. He then recrossed the Atlantic at the end of March 1611, ferrying Lord Delaware back to England. Argyll would come back to Virginia. Delaware would not. Argyll spent more than a year in England this time, sailing again for Virginia in July 1612, arriving on the coast on September 12th. He and his men spent that fall helping the colony repair its boats, and then in December made another trading mission up the Chesapeake, this time returning with 1,100 bushels of corn, 300 of which he kept for his men, and 800 he donated to the colonists. It seems to be on this trip that Argyll got to be friends with Japasaz, the local chief who would conspire with him a few months hence to capture Pocahontas. 
We need not review that moment again. We covered it in the 10th episode of the Jamestown series, True Love. But it's worth examining our attitudes. Seymour Connor, writing more than 70 years ago, had this to say about it, quote, This exploit of Argyll's was of tremendous importance to the colony. He has received too little credit for having conceived and carried through a scheme that brought peace to Virginia for a number of important years. Connor was, of course, correct. But I wonder if any graduate student in history today would characterize the kidnapping of Pocahontas as a good thing for having brought peace to Virginia during the critical years the colony required to become profitable from the tobacco trade. Now, at some point in here, maybe 1612, the English learned that the French had issued a patent and were attempting their own settlement on the coast of Maine, specifically Mount Desert Island, the site of today's Bar Harbor. In early 1613, the company officials met with Argyll, who was anchored off Dover, apparently requesting that he, quote, displant the French colony there. Displant meaning presumably uproot. By June 1613, not long after kidnapping Pocahontas, Argyll was sailing his ship Treasurer up the coast of North America. He first stopped at the mouth of the Hudson and strong-armed Hendrik Christensen, the captain of the small Dutch settlement there, not yet New Amsterdam, which would not be founded until 1624, to submit to the English flag. The English would have believed that Christensen's submission would strengthen their claim to the entire East Coast. You might be asking, what were the Dutch doing there so soon after Hudson's voyage? Modestly attentive listeners will recall that while Hudson didn't find a middle passage to the Pacific, he had seen enough to inspire subsequent Dutch expeditions to the area. Each year, from 1611 to 1614, the Dutch commanders Adrian Block and Hendrik Christensen led expeditions to the eastern United States. Christensen would set up small posts for trading for furs in particular, including one near Albany in 1614 and earlier at the mouth of the Hudson where Argyll found him. Submission being the better part of valor, Christensen survived his encounter with Argyll and would live until the spring of 1619, when Indians, probably Lenapes, would ambush his ship at anchor on the Hudson River and kill Christensen and most of his crew. Argyll and the treasurer then sailed north along the New England coast looking for the French they were supposed to displant. Our account of this adventure comes from the French Jesuit Father Biard, who you may recall had also written an account of the Popham colony derived from his conversations with Indians of the region in 1613. It is on the basis of Biard's writings that many historians today believe the Popham colony failed because of poor relations with the Indians of the region, a theory I don't share. Anyway, let's go to Seymour Connor's summary of Father Biard's narrative of Argyll's encounter with the French. Argyll, sailing up the coast of Maine, met with some Indians who directed him to the Mount Desert colony, thinking that Argyll was a friend of the French. Argyll found the French vessel in the harbor and prepared to fight. The French ship was manned with but half a crew, who at the first shot from the treasurer, for the most part, refused to fight. A Jesuit priest, jumping in here to restate my view that the priests and friars of the various orders 
were some of the very toughest Europeans in early America, attempted to fire one of the pieces on the French ship. But by that time, Treasurer had closed with them and the English prepared to board. Father Dutet, the amateur gunner, was wounded in the assault. The French gave up without much fighting, although some tried to escape by diving overboard. The other half of the French crew were on shore setting up tents and beginning their colony. When they saw Argyll and the English overpower their ship, they fled into the woods, La Saucière, their commander, among them. Argyll came ashore unmolested and settled himself to wait the return of the French, who he believed would come back to camp after a few hours in the forest. While he waited, he located the baggage of Monsieur La Saucière, carefully picked the lock on his trunk, and found La Saucière's patent from the French king, which he destroyed. Then he closed the trunk, putting the Frenchman's baggage in the same order it had been before, so that it appeared not to have been disturbed. After one night in the woods, the Frenchman began to straggle back into camp, preferring surrender to Argyll, to the terrors of the forest. About the middle of the morning, La Saucière returned. Argyll treated him with all civility and courteousness. He told him that he heard that the French were a group of buccaneers who were attempting to settle a base on Mount Desert. Argyll said that in the interests of preserving the peace then existent between France and England, and also in the interests of securing the peace and order of the North American coast, he had sailed up to investigate. Argyll maintained that he hoped it would prove that La Saucière was not a pirate, but a representative of the French king, in which case, said Argyll, he would sail away. His only interest, he said, was to assure himself that the French were acting in good faith. The French commander grew very happy over Argyll's remarks. He assured Argyll that he had grants from the French king and that his expedition was one of good faith. Piracy, quoth he, was furthest from their intentions. La Saucière ordered that his trunk be brought before him. He found it in good order and opened it, expecting to show Argyll his patents. As he looked through his baggage, fruitlessly he grew desperate. He could not understand what had happened to his patent. Argyll's demeanor changed. See your papers? I don't think I have them on me. In that case, we'll have to ask you to come along. Wait, it's possible that I... Uh, yes, here they are. These papers expired three weeks ago. You have to come along. Then, sir, he is supposed to have said, you are rogues and pirates. You tell us you have documents of permission from your king, but expect us to believe your tale without proof. I think it's safe to say that Argyll cracked Argyll up. Anyway, back to me. Argyll then ordered his men to destroy the colony's small physical plant. He let the French who wanted to return to France board fishing boats plying the waters off the coast, and he took their boat and 13 Frenchmen, including Father Biard, back to Jamestown. When they got to Virginia, Argyll turned the prisoners over to the colony's deputy governor, Thomas Dale. Dale, you will recall, was a strict military leader and, it must be said, harsh as they come. And he ordered that all the French be hanged. Argyll interceded. One suspects Dale's order had contradicted some vague commitment Argyll had made to the French prisoners. 
Or perhaps Argyll had not told Dale the part about burning the French king's patent, and Dale backed off. Father Biard, perhaps out of gratitude or maybe out of some other motive, then offered to lead Argyll back to the French settlement at Port Royal, New Brunswick, then under the command of Biancourt de Poitrincourt, whom we met with Samuel de Champlain a few episodes back. What would that motive have been? Poutrincourt and the Jesuits did not like each other at all, so Father Biard might have seen an opportunity to buy his freedom and deal with an internal French political problem at the same time. Now back to Connor's account, quote, Argyll arrived at Poutrincourt's plantation under Father Biard's directions and landed with 40 men in a meadow. He hurried to the French fort, but found it empty. Up the river, about five miles, he located the French fields and barns. He ensconced himself in the French fort and waited for Poutrincourt to return. When Poutrincourt arrived, he proposed to Argyll to accept a bribe and open trade between the French colony and the English. Argyll said his mission was only to drive them out, and if he found Poutrincourt there afterward, he would treat him as an enemy. Poutrincourt submitted but earnestly desired that he might have the Jesuit Father Biard that he may hang him. Back to me, Argyll the Protestant didn't turn over Biard the Jesuit, who had lived to 1622 and write all the stuff that we now rely upon to know about what happened here and at the Popham Colony. But Argyll did take some of the French livestock back to Jamestown. That must have discombobulated those cows and whatnot. Argo went back to England in June 1614, shortly after John Rolfe and Pocahontas married. We do not know precisely what he did during the next two years or so, but he clearly made numerous crossings, transporting people and goods between England and Jamestown. He transported the Rolfe family to London in 1616 and brought John Rolfe back in 1617. That spring, Argyll had been appointed deputy governor of the colony, meaning that he was the man on the spot. He would serve for two years. It was from this period that Argyll's historical reputation suffers, and that seems largely a function of various chroniclers of the 17th and 18th centuries taking sides in the intramural arguments over the Virginia Company. Wickedly attentive listeners will recall that Edward Sands and Thomas Smith led rival factions for control of the company. Argyll was in the Smith faction, and that meant that Sands' partisans took a dim view of the harsh, but perhaps necessary, measures Argyll imposed during his years in charge. Fans of Sands, say that five times fast, won the historical narrative, and so Argyll's name suffered. This we do know. My ancestor, John Rolfe, thought well of him. Accordingly, I hereby revise my ill-considered allegation that Argyll was a dirtbag. This is a good place to stop right now. Next week, unless our muse gets the better of us, we will return to Samuel de Champlain, who will invade New York for the second time. It will be ugly. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, please do that, very, very helpful, 
and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.